0: Now, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 15. The plan for the day is to finish this chapter, um, but, you know, we plan our ways. The Lord directs our steps, but that is the intention. And uh, so the opening of chapter 15, it opens with that conflict between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, It was obvious at that point that Jesus is telling them that worship is a matter of the heart that obedience is a matter of the heart, that this kingdom that he's come to proclaim is a matter of the heart, Okay, Uh, that it's not a matter of what goes in that defiles you, it's not a matter of who or what you touch that defiles you, Uh, that sinful hearts produce sinful actions, sinful attitudes, uh, sinful intentions. And if the problem is in the heart, then what we need is not behavior modification, what we need is not a system to make us holy, what we need is a radically new heart. A complete internal transformation, and that is something that only the gospel gives. But they missed it. And that should surprise us. Because of anybody, these are the people that should have gotten it. Scribes and Pharisees. These are the people who knew the law. These are the sons of the covenant. These are people who possess the whole religious heritage of Israel. They should have not only been anticipating the Messiah, they should have known that he is doing exactly what the Messiah said that he would do. He is saying exactly what the prophets said the Messiah would say, and yet they completely miss the Messiah. And last week, why that is so striking, so, so stark of a contrast, is because we come to Tyre and Sidon, and we meet a most unexpected woman, a Gentile, a Canaanite, an outsider, someone who could not have less of a claim to the religious heritage and the covenant promises of Israel. But what happens? She gets it. Someone who had no reason to get it gets it where those who should have had every reason to get it completely missed it. She comes the right way. She comes in humility. She comes even in desperation, asking for Christ to heal her daughter who is oppressed by a demon. And even when she is met with resistance, uh, things that are really difficult for us to kind of fit into our mold of what Jesus ought to look like. She comes and she asks and she's met first with silence and then uh, with the claim that he has come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then that final parable where the Jewish people are children and her people, the Gentiles, are outsiders. They're dogs even. And yet she is absolutely immovable and steadfast. If he is going to be silent then she will go and continue to harass his disciples when he says i've come only for the lost sheep of the house of israel she'll fall at his feet in worship when he tells the story where it is very clear that she and her people are the outsiders of the dogs, she says so be it but i know that even in the house of a wealthy master that the dogs eat the overflow they eat the crumbs that fall from the table it's a remarkable picture of great faith and that should strike us Because this is great faith in a very unexpected place. This is not where we would expect to find great faith. We would expect to find great faith among the right people, in the right place, in the right land, at the right time. We do not expect to find great faith from a Canaanite woman in the region of Tyre and Sidon, and yet we do. We would expect the children of the covenant to receive the blessings of the coming kingdom. And yet, what did Jesus tell us, and what did this woman's faith show us, and not only us, but the disciples who desperately needed to see it? They needed to see that there were kingdom promises available to the Gentile, to the outsider, to the other. That when the children have been fed, there remains an excess, an overflow, uh, kingdom crumbs, if you will. But that begs the question, if the Gentiles are supposed to be satisfied with the crumbs of the kingdom, what do the crumbs look like? If they get the excess and the overflow, how good can that possibly be? If you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 29 through 31 to set the stage for where we're going for the rest of today. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 29, this is what God's word says. And Jesus went on from there and walked beside the sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and he sat down there and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we recognize that it speaks to those things that we couldn't grasp on our own. If the problem is a heart problem and we recognize that it is, then whether we are Jew or Gentile, male or female, wherever we come from, wherever we have been, We have no natural access to this kingdom. We're a people who don't have a natural insight into who you are. And so we ask for your help. We ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word, as the psalmist writes. We ask that through the power of your spirit, you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We ask for your help that not only do we see the truth, but then we respond rightly to the truth. That we delight in who you are, and then we delight in obedience to what you've called us to be. And so we come, recognizing that we are wholly dependent on you for all of these things. We pray these in Christ's name. Amen. Now from the time that we are very young, we have an innate sense of what is fair and what is not fair. If two children in any circumstance are given an ice cream cone, it is a natural law that they would compare those ice cream cones. And if one is slightly bigger then justice must be done. And it does not matter what that applies to. It applies to anything and everything, and it doesn't change as we get older. It, It seems to be built into us, the idea that there is justice and injustice, and we do not think that it is right or fair that one person or one group should be given an advantage when someone else isn't. And we know, we know, simply by reading the news, that this continues to be a volatile topic in the world and even in the church. Now don't worry, this isn't a sermon on social justice, it's actually about something much more important. What we're talking about today is eternal justice, kingdom justice, or if you want to put it this way, who deserves the kingdom and what kind of kingdom do they deserve? Now we've been in Matthew long enough where I know that we know the answer to that is that nobody deserves the kingdom that the kingdom is this graciously given gift of God through an act of his mercy, and it is given to people who come to him in childlike faith and total dependence. But we also know from Jesus, and we know because we've read Romans before, that the gospel of this kingdom, this message of salvation, these eternal promises are given first to the Jew and then to the Greek, first to this covenant people, and then after that to the Gentile. We saw it built into the narrative last week when this woman is told that it is not good to give the bread of the children to the dogs, and she accepts that. She recognizes that she is not a part of the covenant children of Israel. She recognizes that she has no natural claim to the blessings of Israel or her Messiah, and yet she also recognizes that the Master provides an abundance, that in a wealthy house there is more than enough for the children to eat and for even the dogs to be satisfied. So the question now is, what do those crumbs look like? If she's satisfied with them, what do those crumbs look like? And uh, why do we care? Well, because the vast majority of us, genetically, are people outside of the covenant promises of Israel. Uh, We are the other. We are the outsider. We are those who approach this kingdom as outsiders to the national heritage and covenants given to God's chosen people. So what is it that we expect and anticipate? What kind of a kingdom can we hope to come into? If we get the crumbs, what kind of crumbs do we have? And what we're going to see today is, first of all, an unexpected place, just like last time. And we're going to see an unexpected demonstration of power. And finally, we're going to move into the unexpected provision that closes off this chapter. We're going to tie this all together because what we have here in chapter 14 and 15 is one of the most beautiful parallels in all of the New Testament in my mind, but certainly in all of the gospel of Matthew. So let's open this up first in this unexpected place that we're at. And starting in verse 29, we're going to understand where they are. Jesus went on from there and we have to stop there for a minute because uh, we're not typically invested in the geography of where we're at. Uh, We read the words, and sometimes they kind of bounce off. So let's take a moment to remember where there is. Uh, We're going to call up a map here, and we need to remember that in the first 20 or so verses of this chapter, we are on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee being right in the middle there, and uh, the towns of Capernaum and Bethsaida and those places on the northwestern shore are where Jesus has been doing the bulk of his ministry. It's where the scribes and the Pharisees come up from Jerusalem, and they encounter Jesus, and they have that conflict there. But then starting in verse 21 last week, we know that we moved north and west toward the coast of the Mediterranean Sea into the region of Tyre and Sidon, and that was important because those were Gentile areas. This is outside of that covenant promised land. And now we're told that Jesus went on from there, there being Tyre and Sidon, and he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and at this point we have to make a decision. Did he go back and walk along the Sea of Galilee and those places where he's been before, back around Capernaum, back around Bethsaida, back around Gennesaret, on that western side, or did he go somewhere else? I want to submit to you that I think he went to someplace different. I think he's this time on the eastern shore. Matthew doesn't tell us that directly, but he does embed some clues for us. If you look all the way down to Matthew 15, verse 39 says, after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and he went to the region of Magadan, which is on that western side of the Sea of Galilee. It doesn't really make sense to take a boat to a side of the sea that you're already on. You would probably walk there. But more than that, if we go to Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 7, verse 31... Mark says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So at some point, Jesus moves from Tyre a little bit north to Sidon, and then he goes over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to call up kind of an arrow now, so you can see that we're dealing with an entirely new area. So we're not back in the familiar territory of Israel, not yet anyway. We're on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And I know that probably 99% of you did not jump out of bed today just eager to hear about geography. I know that is probably not what drew you to the tent or to the computer today as you watch this. So who cares? Uh, Why does it matter where we are? Well, here's why it matters, because we're still in a Gentile area. You have to understand thematically that it still matters. Last week, we were in Tyre and Sidon. We're in a Gentile area. We're outside of the promised land, outside of the people of those covenant promises of Israel, and we're still there because those themes are going to carry on. We're still dealing with Gentiles and outsiders, and now we're in the region of the Decapolis, which is kind of on that southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, it doesn't mean that there were no Jews in the crowd. We know that uh, a crowd continues to bring a crowd, and nobody quite draws a crowd like Jesus. We also know that this isn't the first time Jesus has been in that region. Back in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus was in the area of the Gadarenes, and that's where he healed those two demon-possessed men. That's the place where the uh, legion of demons were cast into the herd of swine, and they rushed down the slopes and drowned themselves in the sea. And we remember uh, that really strange encounter that was there. If we were to go all the way back to Matthew chapter 4, we would hear that people from this region had made their way to see Jesus as he was doing ministry in the area of northern Galilee there. So this isn't a brand new place, but we have to understand this is outside of the normal. If Jesus is, as he said, the one who came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, we would expect and anticipate that most of his life and ministry are spent in Israel, and indeed they are. So when we have him in these other areas, it's a departure from what's normal. It's not the expected course of events that have been part of his life and ministry to this point. Uh, In fact, where we are this week has much more to do with culture and custom with Tyre and Sidon than it would with Jerusalem or Capernaum. So we're in this unexpected place. And in this unexpected place, now we're going to be confronted by something of an unexpected power. Uh, We've seen Jesus heal many times. We've seen him heal many diseases in many different scenarios. But uh, the question is, if he is in a different place, if he is outside of the land, then what does the king do when he comes to a pagan people? And as we come to a new region, there are some things that remain the same. People still have their problems. And if we look on in verse 30, we see that the people bring to him some very familiar things. And the great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, And many others, and they put them at his feet. Once again, a crowd comes, and once again, they bring everyone who's in need. Now, here's the thing. We get so used to seeing this. We're not really surprised by who they bring, and really, we're not surprised by what comes next. In fact, even though I didn't read the end of the verse, you probably filled it in on your own, and he healed them. You ever stop to wonder why there is need here just like there is? In Jerusalem, just like there is in Judea, just like there is in Samaria. Do you realize this all goes back to the central point of these passages, and that's that the problem is a matter of the heart? See, if there's a clean land, if there's a pure place, then maybe we would expect that we could find some place where these things don't just happen, where there aren't blind people, where there aren't lame people, where there aren't sick people, where there's not the need. But what do we know? We know that this is a matter of the heart. And that the heart is sinful. And we know that sin kills. And we know that sin separates. And we know that sin distorts. Here's the reality. Because sin is a universal problem, then the impacts of sin in the fall are also universal in their scope. See, we don't think about it like that. Jesus goes to another place, and of course there's sick people. Of course there's blind people. Of course there's deaf people. They're everywhere. But why is that? You realize those things are everywhere because sin is everywhere. It's a physical outworking of the spiritual reality. And so these people are displaying the same need as those in Jerusalem and Judea and Gennesaret and Capernaum. Because at their heart, they have the same need. We have to understand that. And what's the response to that need? Well, we know he healed them. But how are these people going to react to that kind of power? If they have the same need, how are they going to react to the power of this king? We're going to see that the people actually wind up in praise. Once again, we read that little fragment there at the end of verse 30, and he healed them. And we read past that so quickly, but the crowd doesn't. The crowd wondered. They were in wonder because they saw these things. We don't usually stop in wonder at these things because we become so saturated with the idea that this is simply what Jesus does. Jesus heals. We read about it. We've been reading about it. We've colored the coloring pages. We've seen the flannel graphs. We know that Jesus fixes these broken things. And somewhere along the way, we don't wonder anymore. This is power like these people have never seen. Look at what was happening. They saw the mute speaking. They saw the crippled healthy. They saw the lame walking. And they saw the blind seeing. Now let's set this again into a theological context. They didn't just see people's boo-boos being taken away. When we understand why those things are there, then we understand that what they saw was the impact of the curse, the impact of sin, the impact of the fall being peeled back. If sin causes these things, now we are seeing someone with the power to undo what sin does and its power like they've never seen before. If we're honest, this is wholeness that we've never seen before. We live in an age where we are getting harder and harder to impress because we seem to be making strides daily with technology. Imagine the understanding that we have of the human body now and how that compares to just a generation ago. Most of us have probably heard, we know somebody or we know somebody who knows somebody who died of something like appendicitis, polio, things that through God's grace, he's given us the medical technology that we can actually see healing in these things now. And yet you read through these things and we recognize that even for all of our technological advancements, for all of the modern wonders that we have in medicine, for all God's good and gracious gifts that he's given us that... We can't even begin to touch this kind of power. We don't see limbs regrown. We don't see those who are mute able to speak in an instant. Those who are blind regain their sight in a moment. And why does any of that matter? Well, it matters because Jesus has the power to do these things. And he doesn't do these things just to draw a crowd. Remember, we've said this before. We'll we'll say it again. Jesus does not do his ministry for the sake of increasing his ministry. He doesn't just do special things so that people come to see. He also doesn't just heal so that people feel better. Understand his compassion uh, moves in these people. And it is a good thing when suffering is removed, but there's so much more to it than that. These are signs. That's why John calls them signs. They point to a very specific truth. They point to a very specific reality that this king is not like other kings. That this kingdom is not characterized by the power of other kingdoms. This is not a kingdom that is characterized by authority in the way that we would think of it. This is not a kingdom that is characterized by security in the way that we think of it, where militaries and might secure the kingdom. This is a kingdom that is characterized by purity and wholeness and restoration and a power that is completely other than anything that we've seen up to this point. That this one... This Jesus has the power not only to teach and to speak with authority, but to remove the effects of the fall itself. How can he do that? Because he can overcome sin. Because this one has the authority and the ability to deal with the root cause and the singular problem that is at the heart of all of it. And he does it again. And again, and again, it's why we've seen statements like this again, and again, and again. We saw it at the end of Matthew 4. They were bringing to him El who needed healing, and he did it. We saw it in the middle of chapter 8. We saw it at the end of chapter 9. We just saw it toward the end of chapter 14. Why say it again? Why go to all the trouble to give us another summary statement right here in Matthew 15, especially when he just did it in Matthew 14? Because that was then, and that was there, and this is here. All of those other summary statements are in and around the land of Israel. This isn't. This is an unexpected place, and this is not the place where we would expect this power to naturally come. And what's the people's response when they see the mute mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing? They glorified the God of Israel. By the way, that phrase makes a whole lot more sense when we understand that we are not in Israel. This is something striking, that they see this power and they glorify the God of Israel. We've seen that in Matthew 9, the people glorify God when they recognize the authority that he's given to Christ. But again, now we're outside of the covenant land. We are speaking to a people who are largely outside of that covenant people. And yet as they see the power of the king, As they see the nature of this kingdom, they come to the right response and they praise and they glorify the God of Israel. The people with no reason to have access to these kingdom promises are now seeing the power of the kingdom and they are rightly understanding where the power of this kingdom comes from. So in an unexpected place, we have an unexpected demonstration of power. A king who has proven once again that he has the power and the ability to heal all kinds of diseases, all kinds of uh, deformities, but it's so much more than that. This is the power to remove the effects of the curse itself. He's showing what life is like in the presence of the king. In other words, if you're asking what kind of a kingdom can the Gentiles expect, what have we seen so far in Matthew chapter 15? If Gentiles get the crumbs, well, the crumbs are starting to look an awful lot like what the children get, aren't they? And as they see it, they recognize and respond to the power of God. And as we come to the conclusion of this chapter, we see a scene of unexpected provision. Unexpected provision, and once again, this might look a little familiar. Look with me at verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. Now that sounds more like the Jesus we're familiar with, doesn't it? It's much easier to read about the Jesus who feels compassion on the crowd than the Jesus who appears to send that woman away uh, with harshness. We need to remember, Jesus didn't change. Jesus did not have a personality crisis. Jesus did not forget his compassion when he ministered to that woman. That was intentional teaching, and it communicated a very specific point to her and to those men that were around him. And now we see that Jesus is still the master teacher, and the class is back in session. He called his disciples to him. That is a marker in the text for us. When Jesus does that, he has something to communicate. And this time, he's got another lesson. The great crowd, those that have been bringing him, the sick and the weak and the lame and the crippled, the blind... That crowd from 29 to 31 has now been with them, apparently, for three days. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but it becomes very, very clear that for the better part of three days, they have spent the vast majority of their time with Jesus. They are so captivated by what he says and what he does that they are in no hurry to go anywhere. And it's very, very clear that whatever provisions they had brought along with them for that time were now completely run out. Chapter 14 presented us with the same problem, didn't it? A large crowd who didn't have food. And at that time, do you remember what the disciples' solution was back in Matthew chapter 14? The best that the disciples could come up with at that point was uh, send them away so that they can buy food somewhere. So Jesus front loads this as he calls his disciples to himself. And he says, uh, I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. If I send them away, they won't even have enough strength to make the journey home. And in his compassion, Jesus is not willing to do that. He's not willing to send them away empty. And right there, the disciples ask a very familiar question. Verse 33, And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? We know that this isn't like here. This isn't like now. This isn't our time and cultural situation. It is very, very recent in history that food is not only so abundant, but is so available. Uh, You will pass multiple lunch stops on your way home. And some of you are thinking about it right now. This was not then. They had to be very intentional about their food. So this is a natural question, where are we going to get this? Except that question of the disciples raises a pretty obvious question in our minds, and that is why. Why would the disciples ask this question if they had just seen what they had seen in chapter 14? Why and how could men who just saw Jesus feed 5,000 men plus women plus children why would they ask such a similar question? In fact, that has been so difficult for some people that a lot of them just say, well, Matthew made a mistake. And Mark, who also records the Feeding of the 4,000, made a mistake. Maybe these two are reporting one event as two things. Maybe they either messed up the source material, or for their literary reasons, they're kind of embellishing and making one event two um, The most plain reading of the text says that that is not the case. There are certainly similarities. There's a large crowd. There are bread and fish. There's miraculous provision that we know about. But there are some key differences. Uh, I mean, the crowd is a different size. The fish and the loaves are different in number. Uh, The amount of leftovers is different. The kind of baskets that they use to pick up the leftovers are different. Later on, Jesus refers to them as different scenarios. So again, the most plain reading of the text says that these are two events which does nothing to fix our question, why are the disciples asking something that they should definitely know the answer to? We can't be super dogmatic about it. The text doesn't tell us this is the reason. But I think there actually might be a couple of reasons. And first of all, we forget they didn't. They're in a different place. This is not the place where we would expect something drastic like this to happen. It is one thing for Jesus to hang out in the territory of the Gentiles for some rest and relaxation. It is one thing for Jesus to teach Gentiles. It's one thing for Jesus to heal Gentiles. It's another thing for the Jewish Messiah to provide for the basic daily needs of the outsider. See, when the Jewish people think of king, when they think of kingdom, when they think of Messiah, they have these very specific prophetic promises that they go back to. They know because for hundreds of years they've been told about a coming kingdom where plenty and prosperity are the marks of every day. Where this coming kingdom is one of absolute and complete provision and fulfillment. That can't be promised to these people, can it? After he fed the 5,000 in Matthew 14, John chapter 6 tells us that the people had a very specific desire. They were going to come and make him their king by force if necessary. Can you imagine if these Gentiles wanted to make this Jesus their king? How does that fit into your theology if you're a good little Jewish boy? So maybe wrapped up in some of this is the fact that They know that he has the power, but this might not seem like the place where that power should fit. And I also don't think we should downplay the fact that these are human men. And that it is very, very easy and very, very natural for us to go from experiencing the power of God in almost the same breath to questioning whether God even has any power at all. How often do we see that in the biblical record? the wilderness generation, the generation that left Egypt under the mighty power of God, that walked across the Red Sea on dry land, that saw Pharaoh's army swallowed up behind them, that within a matter of days would wonder whether they were going to have anything to eat, anything to drink, and saying it was probably better if we never left Egypt at all. These same disciples who had seen him heal, seen him cast out demons, seen him raise the dead, they still get afraid on boats at night. And before we get too proud how about you and I? How many times has God provided? How many times has God proven himself faithful? How many times has he continued to meet my needs? Sometimes in ways that I expect, many times in ways that I could not imagine. And still I am very quick to go from, thank you, God. It is amazing what you are able to do to God. Do you even hear me? Do you even care? Where are you? and What's your plan and purpose in all of this? In other words, this might be a very theological response. This might also just be a very human response. And I am completely comfortable with both because I think it's probably wrapped up in both of those. But into that familiar problem and even into that familiar question, now we are seeing a very familiar power because Jesus once again proves that he has the power to absolutely meet the need. Starting at verse 34, And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit on the ground, he took the seven loaves and fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. They took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men beside women and children. And all of that sounds very, very much like where we just were. Once again... Bread and fish, a common meal that was not enough to meet even a fraction of the need that was there. Once again, Jesus gives thanks for what is provided. Once again, Jesus breaks and gives to the disciples who give to the crowds. Now we can't miss that. Jesus does the miracle. Jesus does the dividing, the multiplying of what was there. But he gives it to his disciples who are then used to meet the needs of the crowd. He didn't have to do that. Remember back in your Old Testament, manna came down from nowhere and covered the ground. Jesus could have done that. Fish and bread from the sky. A little bit different, but he could have done it. He could have satisfied them in any number of ways, but he does this. He uses these men that he has called to himself to meet the need. And that is very appropriate because as he calls them to himself, he continues to entrust them with work to do for the kingdom. Back in chapter 10, when he called them to himself, it was to send them out to proclaim the gospel message to Israel specifically. At the end of Matthew's gospel, he's going to call them to himself so that he might send them out to make disciples of all the nations. In other words, he is continually entrusting these men with a work to do, and he is the one who is continually enabling them to do that work that he's given them to do. And once again, they all ate and were satisfied. They don't just get a little. They don't just get enough to get them home. They get enough to be made full, to be completely satisfied. There is abundance. And once again, there's leftovers. This time, not 12 baskets, but seven. Not small baskets, but large ones. And we see that I don't think those numbers are accidental either. Now we have to be careful because you can do a lot of damage by spiritualizing or allegorizing numbers here or wondering what the hidden significance is. First of all, you need to understand there were seven actual baskets left over. That is not a metaphor. That is not a deeper hidden meaning. There were seven baskets left over. But at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12. Each one of those disciples had a basket. Very powerful object lesson. We know that often seven signifies complete fulfillment, completion, perfection. Very well could be that this symbolizes kind of a completion of the kingdom promises, that fullness that the kingdom promises are made, not only to the Jew, but to the Gentile. And now those who eat were 4,000 men besides women and children. Once again, a crowd probably well over 10,000 people when we include everyone. And each one is satisfied and full. Why? Because Jesus has compassion on the crowd. Because in doing these miracles, He's pointing to something greater. Remember, after the feeding of the 5,000 in John's Gospel, Jesus makes a very specific point that the crowds will be hungry again. This is a remarkable day as He feeds thousands of people on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee. But come morning, they will all be hungry again, no matter how full they were the night before. You've all experienced this. You go to Thanksgiving and you eat until you are more than satisfied and you vow that you will not eat anymore, maybe ever. And then a couple hours later, the leftover turkey sandwiches come out and you're like, well, it'd be a shame if that went to waste. So, you know, you make the exception. Why? Well, because as it turns out, food goes in, gets processed and gets eliminated and you have to start the whole process over again. Does that sound familiar? It should, we just talked about that. That food is a temporary thing, but that hunger continues. But as Jesus does this, He is pointing to a greater hunger. It is why in John 6, He says, I am the bread of life. And it's only by eating of Me, by taking of Me, that you come to the place where you are satisfied. As He does these things, He is showing that satisfaction is not from bread, and it is not from fish. Satisfaction ultimately comes from Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. Now, What's the point of all of this? Why redo these things in such a familiar way? What we have here, not some hidden meaning, but if we pay attention to the context, what we have here are these remarkable answers to the kingdom promises. This whole thing is wrapped up in what kingdom promises, and it's how this all fits together. Because really from chapter four we've known that jesus heals and that he can heal many from chapter five six and seven we know that jesus has authority he teaches like no one has ever taught before from chapter 10 we know that jesus plans to send his men out first to israel and then to the world why say it why do it this way this is where we see one of the most remarkable and beautiful parallels That we see in the entire gospel. I want you to do this for me. I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 14. Just flip the page back for a minute. Let's be reminded of where we've been. In Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, we see Jesus go to a desolate place but be met by a large crowd. And beginning in verse 13, we have that narrative of Jesus feeding a massive crowd of people. Then you look a little further down in the chapter, Matthew 14, beginning in verse 34. He comes to a land and when people recognize him, people from all that region bring to him all who are sick. And we read about a crowd of people bringing their sick to Jesus for healing. Turn the page, turn the chapter to Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, and we encounter a people who absolutely should have understood who Jesus was, but completely miss it. And then in Matthew 15, 10-20, we find out why. Because defilement is a heart matter. Because the fallen heart produces fallen thoughts, fallen attitudes, fallen actions, fallen intentions. We find out that it's a changed heart and not clean hands that save you. We find out that it's faith and not adhering to the law and not ritual purity, not even having the right genealogy that brings someone into the kingdom. That central truth that the kingdom is obtained by faith And that it produces a new heart. And then what do we see? A woman who should not have understood, but who does. And then what do we see? A summary statement of Jesus healing multitudes of people with very physical problems. And then what do we see? Jesus feeding a crowd of thousands. If you begin to put those two chapters together, and you don't just listen to me break it up week after week after week, if you read those all together, you begin to see this wonderful, beautiful arc that parallels both of those. And what do you have on the bookends? You have a mass feeding on the bookends. And immediately before that, or immediately after that, depending on the side, you have this summary statement of Jesus healing many. And then immediately before that or immediately after that, you have Jesus encountering people who are coming to grips with His identity and who He is. And right in the middle of that, you have the heart of all of it that says this is a heart problem. Who are those who really worship? Well, it turns out it's not the right people in the right places. It's people that recognize Jesus for who He is. Who gets the kingdom? Well, it's not just something that's genetically encoded into you. It's something that's obtained by faith and coming to God in humility. It's a kingdom that's come into by the weak, by the outcast, by the other, by the Gentile of all things. What kind of kingdom could there possibly be for the outsider? You read Matthew 14 and Matthew 15 and you see that it's a kingdom that is characterized by the same kind of power. And that all makes so much sense when we put it together because if the problem is the same, if the God is the same, then wouldn't the promises of the kingdom be the same? God in His perfect faithfulness does all things well. He sends the Messiah to the covenant chosen people in the right way at the right time, and he does exactly the right things. And by the way, God will continue to be absolutely faithful to those covenant promises that he made to Israel. How do we know? Because he always has been. And where's the hope for the rest of it? That those covenant promises have always included the nations from way back in Genesis, when God told Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Jew first, and then to the Greek, but the same eternal hope, because it's the same gospel that Christ has used to call people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. We pull back from all of this, and we ask, who is God for? Who is this God for? It's a critical question that we have to answer. We have to answer. Is there a God for me and a God for you? Is there a God for us, whoever we define us as, and a God for them? A few years ago, Batman versus Superman came out. Now, if you haven't seen it, don't worry. It's just as disappointing as every other DC movie. But in one scene, toward the end, Lex Luthor is taunting Batman. He's kind of goading him into a very particular fight. And in an otherwise blah movie, he begins to say some very theologically interesting things. On this rooftop, he begins naming off first uh, Egyptian gods, and uh, then the gods of Greek mythology, and then he throws in the name of Jehovah. And he says that what we call God depends on our tribe... Because God is tribal. He says, God takes sides. We might easily dismiss that as a bad line, delivered poorly in a bad movie. uh, But we have to understand that's what the world thinks. That every culture and every people just invent a God that fits their need. And if that's the case, then your God is as good as my God, is as good as the next God... And that is why the world is appalled that Christianity would dare to say there is but one way. How could we be so blind, so narrow, so bigoted to say that our God is not a God, but is the God? Well, because we recognize that that's the way it has to be. Because each culture and each people doesn't bring a unique problem to the table. We bring the same problem. We bring sin. A fallen heart that rebels against the God who created us. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what your background is. You bring the same eternally condemning problem to the table, and that is that you have sinned against the God who made you. And if there is one problem, then there can only be one solution. And his name is Jesus Christ. God, very God, who took on human flesh... Who lived in perfect righteousness and died for those who sinned against him. And he died so that he might call a people to himself out of every tribe and tongue and nation. Israel's Messiah, faithful to the covenant promises, the same God who calls the Gentiles to himself. The master who feeds the children, who abundantly provides the excesses of the kingdom for those of us who were not called a people. A couple things for us to remember as we go today. First of all, we need to remember the faithfulness of God. What a wonderful reminder through these two chapters especially that God is absolutely faithful, that he sent the Messiah at the time that he said he would to the people that he said he would in the way that he said he would Blessed we are to understand that the God who is faithful to every promise is the one who calls the nations to himself. When we were strangers, a people who had no hope, no claim to the kingdom, uh, and it matters. This faithfulness of God ought to be a consistent comfort in the life of his people because if God is unchanging and unfailing, then we have a hope that lasts far beyond these circumstances that seem to come and go in our lives. Second of all, We remember the power of God. We cannot read these sections without being reminded of the power of God. He restores sight to the blind. He restores hearing to the deaf. He restores limbs to the lame. He's the one who raises the dead. He's the one who calms the sea. He's the one who feeds the multiple thousands with nothing. And here's the thing. If God promised to meet all of our needs, and He has, and if God is faithful to do all that He has said He would do, and He is, then isn't it a comforting thing to be reminded that He has the power to do those things? That God's promises are not empty promises, but that they're backed up by the infinite fullness of his power and his sovereignty. In our need and in our desperation, he is more than able to meet the need and even to provide in abundance. And finally, we have to consider the call of God. Maybe there's someone here today watching or listening that is all too aware that you are still an outsider in the sense that these passages talk about. And maybe it is because you, more than anyone, are aware that your past makes you unfit. Maybe your presence makes you unfit to claim this kind of king and this kind of kingdom. You need to be reminded that God calls sinners. That none of us, no matter how clean we might appear to be, we're any closer to salvation due to our birth or due to our actions, due to our heritage. No one is saved apart from mercy that God saves and continues to save, God redeems and continues to redeem people that the world says are not redeemable. Understand this. We preach a gospel that is in total agreement with your assessment of your sin. You are unfit and unworthy for this kingdom. So am I. And so are we. And so is everyone. And understand this, that we preach a gospel of a Savior who redeems sinners, even those that we would consider the most vile. And it's not because we are able to clean ourselves up to a particular degree. It is because Christ places His righteousness, His rightness, His goodness upon us. And He takes our sin, our stain, our filth. And the good news does not end there. This gospel that redeems the worst promises new life in Christ. We're very quick to say, come as you are, and rightly so. But this God, who has the power to feed out of nothing, the power to bring life out of death, has the power to actually change lives. To turn those who are enslaved to sin into those who pursue obedience. A life that brings victory over sins. It's a gospel that says that real change is possible because it brings with it a total heart transformation. Understand this. There is one king, and he is coming again. And he calls you to respond. Let's pray. Lord, what a beautiful picture that you've given for us of the power and the glory of the kingdom. That in the presence of the king there's wholeness there's fullness there's provision and abundance and lord you've told us that there is one way to gain access to that kingdom that by grace we're saved through faith and that it's nothing of ourselves but it's the gift of god not of our works so we have absolutely no reason to boast in ourselves so let us be a people that boast in you let us be a people that boast in our weakness that point out continually how great you are in the midst of our failures and our weaknesses. God, help us to be a people who preach this kind of kingdom, who call sin what it is, and who call men and women to repentance, to a forgiveness that is real, to a power that changes lives, to a kingdom that is coming that is greater than anything we could even imagine. Lord, come quickly. But every day until you come, make us faithful, make us obedient, and call people to yourself. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.